Langston Hughes, the poet of the Harlem Renaissance, published his autobiography when he was 38. In it, he reflected on his salvation a quarter of a century before. I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church. Every night for weeks there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting. Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved, but one boy and me. He was a rounder's son named Wesley. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. So he got up and was saved. Then I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled all around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or for lying in the temple. So I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. Suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they saw me rise. I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied that I had deceived everybody in the church, that I hadn't seen Jesus, and that now I didn't believe there was a Jesus anymore. How important is salvation to you? That probably depends on what it is and how much it costs. As a boy, Hughes thought of salvation as a deliverance from passing loneliness or maybe some temporary hypocrisy before religious friends and family. At the time, he didn't perceive any other salvation that he needed or that would have anything to do with the church. I wonder what you think about salvation. In the first century, Jesus' day, expectations were that a great prophet-deliverer, a savior, was to come. The appearance of John the Baptist a few years before had hit the people like the ripples of an earthquake. Thousands pursued John into the wilderness and listened to his denunciations of run-of-the-mill righteousness and religiousness. They were shocked as John began to baptize, I mean, dunk in water Jews as if they were like the morally unclean Gentiles who would go through such cleansing rituals before being received as Jewish converts. John was doing that to Jews. And then when Jesus came, well, his days and weeks of public teaching mixed with healings and other genuine miracles drew the attention of country crowds and of city theologians. Both came with high hopes for the Messiah to make Israel great again, kicking out the foreign troops, causing economic prosperity to flow like the River Jordan. The assumption was that this great Messiah would come and he would do things that were great corporate acts that would affect the nation as a whole. That is, they assumed that as individuals, they were fine simply by the fact that they were Israelites. That ended any vital question of them personally, individually, needing to rearrange anything with God. They assumed that as individuals, they were fine. But the Messiah would come, 
and he would fix a problem. He would save his people, yes, but he would save us, they expected, from a problem not in here, but out there. That's the problem, and that's what he would save his people from. That was the expectation at the time. Jesus had a more comprehensive view, as we find in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. He knew that the most fundamental problems that needed to be addressed were in the hearts of the people and what they treasured. Outward liberations, like healing from disease or disability, were not permanent releases from the physical effects of the fall. Everyone whom Jesus healed would die. It would be a temporary respite at best from suffering and the physical effects of the fall. It was their hearts that they needed to be saved from. It was their hearts that needed to be changed forever. This all became crystal clear in the 12th chapter of Matthew. Take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 12. If you're using the Bibles we provide here, you'll find the passage beginning on page 817. If you're just visiting with friends on a holiday weekend, you're not used to looking at a Bible, the large number or the chapter numbers, so chapter 12, the smaller numbers after that that may look like footnote references are verse numbers. So every chapter is divided into verses almost sentence by sentence. So you'll be helped if you'll open a Bible and leave it there as we talk through the passage together and refer to it. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus heat up. Up in chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees plotted to destroy Jesus. And then in verse 15, Jesus withdrew from them, wanting to avoid a direct confrontation at that time. We considered last week his many healings, each one a picture and parable of the salvation that he came to bring. And yet, the strange temporary exhortation to silence on the part of those who were healed. Presumably because Jesus had more he wanted to teach them, more redefining of their expectations of the Messiah to show them he wasn't just coming to kick out the Romans, he was coming to confront them with their sins and their eternal need before God before he completed his messianic mission in the work of the cross and the victory of the tomb. But in our passage today, someone sought out Jesus with the case of a man who was blind and mute. What would Jesus do? What would the Pharisees say? What would happen as a result? Let's find out as we read our passage for today. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed And said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Well, in this passage, as we work through it, we see four simple questions about salvation answered. Who is the Savior? Verses 22 to 32. Who needs to be saved? Verses 33 to 37. Who will be saved? Verses 38 to 42. And what does it mean to not be saved? Verses 43 to 45. Let me repeat that, because I love you, and I know how some of you are about your outlines. <laughs> who is the Savior? Verses 22 to 32. Who needs to be saved? Verses 33 to 37. Who will be saved? Verses 38 to 42. And what does it mean to not be saved? Verses 43 to 45. I pray that as we study this together, God will open our eyes and give us faith in him. First question, who is the Savior? That's the question that's dominating the three-way dialogue between the crowds of people and the Pharisees and Jesus. You look there, verse 22. 
Then a demon-oppressed man was blind and mute and brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Just fascinating. They're not talking about the guy who was healed. They're talking about the guy who did the healing. You see, these are the crowds. They're not necessarily lettered people in theology, but they see what is most spectacular. And to them, it isn't the man who couldn't speak and now can speak, who couldn't see and now can see. That's certainly not an everyday occurrence to see such a thing. But it is the man who affected it, who did it. That is who has captured the attention of the crowds. And so they wonder, can this be the son of David, a, a, a title for the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons, meaning your prophets, your disciples, cast them out? Because it was common in the first century to have exorcism kind of services by Pharisees. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The truth is that Jesus had come on a mission. He had come to save. And that's what he was indicating to the Pharisees by that statement there in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and it was, it was by the Spirit of God that he was doing this, he explicitly argued against the demonic alternative that they were suggesting, that it was by the demon's own power he was doing it. It, was, it didn't make any sense, he said. So if he's doing it by the power of the Spirit of God, then that is the conclusion that follows from the fact that this healing was in fact done by the power of God's own Spirit, God himself. The conclusion is that, how does he put it there in verse 28? Because this is what he's telling him is really going on. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And what that means is that the rule of God was breaking in on his world, and that would mean that he would save his people, as he had so long ago at the Exodus, and as he had so many times since, when he delivered them from the Assyrians during the time of Hezekiah, when he had brought them back from Babylon, when Cyrus ruled in Persia, and now far more than those mere foreshadowings in the Old Testament, the time for the deepest deliverance, the deepest salvation had come. Jesus had come to save. So many issues we could deal with in these verses. But common questions that come to the reader of these verses are these. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How is it different than words spoken against the Son of Man? Is it still possible today? Those are good questions. And they relate to our understanding of Jesus. So let's just take each one briefly. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is a knowing, enduring opposition to the work of God. 
It is a knowing, enduring opposition to the work of God. How is it different from words spoken against the Son of Man? Words against the Son of Man were part of the temporary humiliation of the Son of God in the Incarnation. So this isn't so much saying, you know, you can diss the Father and diss the Son, but watch out about the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying here. As it is part of the partialness of God's revelation of Himself through the Incarnation of the Son, at least at the Son's first coming, Part of that means his hiddenness to the eyes of sinners. So words against the Son of Man in his incarnate state are to be expected. But a knowing opposition to the work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, here summarized by the Spirit as the active agent of God's work in the world, such opposition against our only hope of salvation is spiritual suicide. Is it still possible? To blaspheme in this way. Yes, by sustained knowing opposition to God and his work. It's interesting that Jesus here didn't say that the misascription of God's work in this healing in verse 22 to Beelzebul, to Satan, Jesus didn't say that this was an instance of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We have in all of Scripture no clear instance of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit pointed out. But it must have been so close to it as to elicit this warning from Jesus, which is why he says it here. A clear, saving, healing, restoring work done by God's power, where a guy who couldn't talk can talk, a guy who couldn't see can see. No, no one else in Scripture gives sight to the blind but God. In Isaiah, it's one of the signs of the Messiah. To see this happen before their very eyes and to ascribe it, particularly to interpret it by the masters of scriptural interpretation, the Pharisees, to ascribe it to the work of Satan. If that was not knowing opposition to the work of God, it comes perilously close to it. So many matters here are important to us, but none more important than this. When it comes to who Jesus is and what he's come to do, brothers and sisters, use your time and your talent and your influence and your knowledge, and your friendships, and your family relations to teach the truth about Jesus. Christians have traditionally realized that some of our most important ethical teachings are implications of the Bible's commands and prohibitions. Well, here, in the strongest of terms, we're forbidden to oppose God's work. By implication, you and I must give ourselves to do the opposite of what these Pharisees were doing. We must make use of every means that we have to make sure that our children and siblings, our parents and friends, our students and bosses are told the truth about God's wonderful saving work in Jesus Christ. There's great news in this passage. You look at verse 31, that there is forgiveness through repentance and faith in Christ for every sin and blasphemy. Marvel at God's wide and forgiving love. He is so completely good. No one will say him, wrong at the last day for condemning sin. And yet he offers forgiveness through Christ. I pray that all of our eyes will be open to see it and our tongues loosened to praise him for it. Jesus has come as our Savior. But then another question follows quickly on in our minds. Who needs to be saved? Look at verses 33 to 37 again. 
Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. After Jesus' teaching on speaking against the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues teaching about the importance of words, leaving those who heard him in no uncertainty that their own speech had proved that they needed to be saved. He calls them here, you brood of vipers. He puts it so sharply there in the short, simple question in the middle of verse 34. You see that? How can you speak good when you are evil? They were a mess spiritually. Even as the crowd seemed to be feeling their way to understanding Jesus. And it's interesting to go through Matthew's gospel in order and look at what the people, the crowd, say. I mean, here they've gotten to the point of saying, is this the son of David? They're almost going to beat Peter in chapter 16 to seeing him as the Messiah. But even as the crowds are doing that, understanding Jesus is the one who is fulfilling the prophesied works of the Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures, the very teachers of those Scriptures pointed them away from that conclusion with their questions and accusations. Remember up in verse 14, these were the teachers who had plotted and planned to destroy Jesus. So this being the case, it may help us to understand verse 37 better. <coughs> Look at verse 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In what sense will you be justified by your words? Well, I think it would be like James later taught in James 2.24, when James said, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you read James in context, he's not saying that Abraham's works or Rahab's works saved them, but rather that their works showed that the faith they had was real and genuine faith, not false and powerless faith. So here, if someone is truly saved by Jesus the Messiah, our words will change. And our words being changed won't cause our salvation, but they will surely accompany come along with our salvation. So people who are saved will not talk about Jesus like these religious teachers here in verse 24 were speaking. Part of the fruit of God's saving work in your life will be the change in what you say about Jesus. And along with that will come everything else as you grow in your understanding by the work of God's Spirit through His Word and through His church. Your speech will change. If the speech doesn't change, it suggests something inside that the speech comes out of hasn't changed. And isn't verse 35 piercing? The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. Friend, how you live depends upon what you treasure most. Jesus was always pressing people around him who seemed to think that including some religious practices in their schedules gave them a pass when it came to other issues of morality or mercy. You know, if I'm orthodox in my teaching, or if I do the right thing in regards to the temple or the sacrifices or the Sabbath, 
Well, then I don't need to be so concerned about whether or not I'm immoral or unmerciful. They wouldn't put it that clearly, but that's how they seem to live. Friends, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible is very, you could call it dark, or you could call it realistic, about humanity and sin. Uh, There's so much religiousness in our country as just positive thinking that people are sometimes shocked when they first open the Bible and read it carefully because it is absolutely nothing like positive thinking. If anything, it's negative thinking because it's negative thinking that helps us to understand the truth of the situation. Then there's profound positive that comes in, but you won't understand the point of the positive if you don't understand the real negative. That's what's going on here in Jesus' teaching to these Pharisees. The humanity is typified by sin, is what we see in the Bible. I mean, weren't we seeing that a few months ago when we were in Deuteronomy? Do you remember that? Why were the Israelites going to wipe out the inhabitants of the land? Because of their sin. Why had the very generation of Israelites who were going to go to initially wipe out the inhabitants of the land, why were they themselves wiped out? Because of their sin. Why did Moses not lead the children of Israel into the promised land? Because of his sin. I mean, we can just keep going and going. With all the kings of Judah and Israel that come afterwards in the histories, you know, why did they oppose prophet of the Lord after prophet of the Lord? Because of their sin. Friends, the, the Bible teaches us that we are all spiritually dead in sins and transgressions. This treasuring the wrong thing seems to be endemic to the human heart. So let's just take you as one example. If you're here and you're not a Christian, just try to answer this question to yourself. What do you treasure most? You don't need to pose. I'm not asking you to say it out loud or to the Christian friend you came with. I'm just saying in your own mind, think for a moment. A little self-evaluation. What is it that you most treasure? I wonder what your speech suggests your treasure is. One of the clearest evidences that every single one of us needs saving is what we treasure in our hearts and what we most value. And too often those are things other than God and His only Son, Jesus Christ. What He tells us in His Word He made us for. Of course, every single person values some good things. We're made in God's image. But it's those other things that you treasure. Some of them openly and with pride. Others of them secretly that are opposed to God and His Word that you need to change. But you can't. And even if you could, that doesn't dissolve the responsibility you have for all the actions that you've already taken as a morally accountable being in the past. And so you begin to see that everyone needs a Savior, that you need a Savior. And friends, that's the good news about Jesus Christ, that He came to be that Savior, to live that life where He perfectly treasured His heavenly Father above all. You can see that even in the life He lived and finally in the death He died. He gave it all for God's will, for His goodness and love toward sinners like us. He died as a sacrifice in the place of all of those who would turn and trust in Him. And God raised Him from the dead. He ascended to heaven where He presented this sacrifice to His heavenly Father who accepted it 
Again, on behalf of all of us who would turn and trust in Him. Have you done that? Well, that's why we have church membership and church discipline. Uh, corporate practices together to help us to assure ourselves that we're not crazy. No, yeah, we are imperfectly but truly living as disciples of Jesus, or we're not. Don't try to do this on your own. If you're visiting with us from somewhere else, let me just encourage you. Find a Bible-preaching church that will tell you the truth. Love those people. Join that church. Uh, they can do more good to help you, even in your attempt to join them, than you might imagine. Okay, if everyone needs to be saved, our third question, who will be saved? Who will be saved? And to answer that, we look again at verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The question of who is saved is really brought to the fore because of Jesus' strong condemnation of his own generation. He presents them as being marked by evil and adultery. And by this adultery, he's not saying they were particularly unfaithful in their marriages, though they may or may not have been. He's using it as that image so often in the Old Testament, they're being unfaithful to God. Uh, they were clearly not being faithful to Yahweh, faithful exclusively in their devotion to the Lord. And that was being evidenced by their rejection here in verse 41 of something greater than Jonah. Verse 42 of something greater than Solomon. Jesus is referring to himself. He is the Son of God come to save his people. And these religious leaders are not repenting like the men of Nineveh had done. They've not come to hear and believe Jesus' wisdom, but rather they are plotting to destroy him. And that's why Jesus is teaching here so clearly that this generation of Bible teachers will be condemned. Okay, well then who will be saved? Well, he says repenting and believing Gentiles. Like the, the people of Nineveh or the queen of the south, those who came with her. These Gentiles are the model of hearing and receiving God's word with faith and repentance. Jesus brings God's word to these Pharisees. They reject it. Meanwhile, the evil Ninevites heard it and repented and were saved. Jesus brings these word, this word to the Pharisees and they reject it. Meanwhile, the queen of the south, a pagan queen from a great distance, came a long way just to hear the wisdom of God in Solomon. Presumably because she would believe what she heard. I'm sure they were galled at having Gentiles being publicly presented to them as models of what it means to follow the Lord, to know the Lord and love the Lord. And yet Jesus was just piercingly reading the Old Testament, showing them the very truth of the Scriptures they claimed to understand and to teach so well. You may wonder why it was wrong here for the scribes and Pharisees in verse 38 to ask for a sign. I mean, didn't Jesus give multiple signs? Yes. But these Bible teachers were clearly misunderstanding their own unbelief as the result of merely external circumstances, as if they lacked sufficient evidence. As if Jesus, if he'll just pour, pull one more rabbit out of one more hat, 
Oh, we'll believe you. As if the problem were somehow Jesus's, that he had provided insufficient evidence. But Jesus, knowing their scheming hearts, rejects their desire for another miracle. Mark and Luke both record that these Pharisees asked Jesus this question to test Jesus. Oh, the irony of self-satisfied, self-confident murderers that were plotting to destroy him to put anyone else to some test, but especially the truly holy and all-good Son of God. But friends, so blinding a thing is sin, and so stupefying is it to our natures that they did this. They had the temerity to test Him. I wonder if there's some sign that you've told the Lord privately that if you do this, then I will surrender this part of me to you. How would that be any different than what Jesus here condemns the Pharisees for doing? How has God dealt with you in insufficient clarity and mercy that you then have some further stipulations for him before he might ascend to the high lordship of your life? Think carefully about that. Instead of granting the request, Jesus speaks to them only of the most irrefutable sign, his coming death and resurrection, which will expose the spiritual death of many even as it would bring hope to the nations. He's using these two Gentile examples from the Old Testament as paradigms of real repentance and real faith. And he's calling the Pharisees to be more like the Ninevites, to be more like the Queen of the South. Again and again, it's the account of the Bible that the people whom God will save are surprising. God loves saving surprising people. Here, it's the evil, conquering pagan Ninevites that were not good people that God sends His Word to through Jonah, and God saves them. Or should I say, God saves them. That's the surprising thing. And then it's this pagan queen from a great way off who so values the Lord and His Word that she drives forever to get to church, as it were. Who would have thought that God would save her? My Christian brothers and sisters, since this is the case, pray that God make us faithful in sharing the good news, even with the people around us who seem the most unlikely to be converted. Because I'll bet you, you're going to see more of them in your lifetime converted than you are the people who quietly go to church every Sunday and it seems to make no difference in their lives. God delights in redeeming the clearly lost murderers like Moses and David and Paul. He grips their hearts and changes them to love for himself. He turns them into agents for eternal life. And by so doing, God makes it clear that he is saving, and that by his mercy and grace, not one part of our salvation will be because of anything that we have earned. Also, if you are here today as a non-Christian, do notice the significance that Jesus attaches in verse 39 to the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just to be clear with you about what that is, look at the next verse. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the heart of the earth, that means Jesus is predict, predicting his burial. That is, he's predicting he will be killed. He's predicting his body will be buried. Now you could say these are not very difficult predictions to make. Most of us could make some predictions, something like that. Well, but remember, he was the Messiah. He was presenting himself as the Messiah. So the Messiah being killed sounds like the Messiah losing. So this is not, not exactly what they were expecting about the Messiah. But even more strangely, that this burial would be as short-lived as Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Jesus is implying that even as Jonah rejoined the world of the living after three days, so would he. Now, as the time got closer, Jesus' predictions get even clearer. It's extraordinary. But the relevance for us today here is, friend, if you're here as a non-Christian, Jesus seems to put special urgency on your paying attention to that sign, that sign of his dying and rising again will be what finally undoes the unbelief of many. That's what happened to me. I was an agnostic, and I finally could not muster enough faith to continue to be an agnostic among the relentless facts of history, which seemed to be that the resurrection really happened. If you're here and you want to read more about this, I found four more little copies of J.D. Anderson's lecture, The Evidence for the Resurrection. Uh, I'll have these with me at that door afterwards. If you're a Christian, don't even bother asking me for one of these. I've only got four. If you are a Christian, you should not lie and say you're a non-Christian for greater good or something just to get this. I'm sure you can obtain these online, no problem. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or like you're not sure you're a Christian, you've got questions, and you're kind of you know, wondering what... Jesus says this sign of Jonah is hugely important. And here's a little book where that's meditated on. Anyway, that's for you. One more question that the last few verses of our text press on us. What does it mean to not be saved? What does it mean to not be saved? Look again at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. For all the speculative questions that one may ask about demons and unclean spirits and the normal travel paths, the point is clearly that phrase in verse 45, the last state is worse than the first. This seems to be one indisputable aspect of what it means to be lost. For over 100 years, the Gifford Lectures have been given in the four major Scottish universities on topics of natural theology. In 1899, William James gave the lectures, and they were published under the title, The Varieties of Religious Experience. James divided 19th century religious concepts into two main schools, one working from a sense of the sixth soul, the other from a reliance on healthy-mindedness. So those in the first school emphasize mankind's separation from God, the corruption of nature, the inheritance of guilt, original sin. Those in the second school emphasize God's creation of the world as his own good domain, his desire that people be saved and happy, and the access offered by him to him by his benevolent nature on which human nature is modeled. Friends, these two schools still largely represent the churches of our own day. Uh, this second group are the healthy-minded churches of the, the theological liberals 
and their popular representatives, the prosperity, health, and wealth preachers. Churches that are all about advantages in this life. You want a Christian for this advantage now and this gain now? And the first group, on the other side, historic Christian congregations like our own that assume that the Bible is true, that God is really good, and that sin is our worst problem. So to help us understand these final verses better, what's the parallel that Jesus is drawing between the temporarily delivered man and this generation? Jesus is concluding to the watching crowds of people a sharp warning. He is telling them that any deliverance they seem to know by adopting the Pharisees' legalism, this is like the house being cleaned up after the demon, but it's spiritually empty. It's unoccupied. You know, having some kind of repentance, but with no true faith in Christ accompanying it, it results in a worse state than that which the sinner was in before he encountered the law. Any religion which is mainly rules is ruinous. The Bible doesn't tell us that we are the religiously sick who need to heal ourselves by rigorously following rules. No, that's not what we see at all. Rather, the Bible tells us that we are the spiritually dead who need God to heal us, to save us, to resurrect us by the application of the merits of Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of in the place of all of those who would turn and trust in Him. Apart from such turning and trusting, Jesus is saying here, all of our best days are behind us. And only the darkness is ultimately ahead. The centrality of salvation in the language of take up your cross and follow me that Jesus has already used to his followers shows us that the sacrifice of this life in order to gain the next is a good bargain. And that's a sacrifice that the TV prosperity preachers could not even begin to understand. It's against everything they teach. Moms and dads who are here this morning, I hope you realize that among other things, this means that we do not only wish to teach our children good morals and upstanding ethics, to clean their room and be sweet to the neighbors, because they will never follow them perfectly, and their most important relationship, their relationship with God, will be left fundamentally unaddressed. Their only hope for forgiveness and for a restored relationship with God is through repentance for their sins and faith in Jesus Christ. He is absolutely good and absolutely reliable. He is the one that we are to extol to our children. Missing Him, finally, is to consign yourself to have God's mercy one day replaced entirely by His justice. And that is not good for sinners like you and me, and it's not good for our children. We naturally become inured in our sins, accustomed to them, at home with them. And one sin so welcomed can make way for others. Examples in our own lives are too easy to think of and too tragic in their consequences. Lostness would make folly normal, and light itself, darkness. Of the many contrasts in our passage, I think I counted ten contrasts in our fairly brief passage, is any more tragic than this. The contrast of the comparative goodness of where we began 
in verse 43, over against where we will reside endlessly, in verse 45, in a world without light and without love. That's something of what it means to be lost. To have your imagined neutrality finally unmasked. Jesus had said up in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Lest this seem like a grim place to leave us, I recall John Newton's comment when asked about a particularly hopeless person. Newton replied, I have never despaired for any man since God saved me. Why should you not despair this morning? How could God save the likes of you and me? Which brings us to the Lord's Supper. How could God save the likes of you and me? The Baptist faith and message summarizes Scripture's teaching on the Lord's Supper, saying that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. You know, this table is from the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. A couple of years before, He was giving the teaching we've just studied. But He left this as a memorial, as a symbol of His self-giving. It's from that same fruitful, instructive mind of love which taught so powerfully a couple of years earlier this passage that we're studying, characterizing his love and ministry to his own as he healed the blind, brought the rule and reign of God, spoke and taught pure truth, presented himself as greater than the prophets and the kings of the Old Testament, and exposed the emptiness of self-righteous religion. In all of this, this table is anticipated. Here is healing for the spiritually sick and rest for the religiously tired. Here we rest from our own labors and rely upon His. Here God rules and reigns as He is the true host of this table. It is for His family. He has presented its plenty to us without our help. Here the truth of His provision in Christ is depicted as Jesus taught that He is the bread of life, that He is the true vine. The labors of the Son of David and the Son of Man as prophet, priest, and king come together at this table. Here we see the truth of this provision. Here Jesus' role as the greatest prophet teaches us, as the greatest of the kings rules us, as the greatest of the priests puts us in mind again of His sacrifice for us and makes Himself our Savior. As he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Here again the call of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit now you would effectively call us that you would give us rest in Christ. Give us eyes that see, faith that grabs and holds. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have shown for us.
for the cost of it, for the care in it. Lord, glorify yourself by doing us good, even as we recall and promise and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's on page 12 in your bulletin. You'll find the poet's call to us to see. There in stanza 2, the third line down, see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Let's stand and sing.